You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning for rape, racism, ableism, and human sacrifice. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on... What? What? Mad Universe! This is the Circus of Dr. Lowe. We show you things that you don't know. We tell you of places you'll never go. We've searched the world both high and low to capture the beasts of this marvelous show. From mountains where Madden winds did blow to islands where zephyrs breathe sweet and slow. Oh, we've spared no pains and we've spared no dough. We've dug at the secrets of long ago and we've risen to heaven and plunged below for we wanted to make it one hell of a show. And the things you'll see in your brains will glow Long past the time when the winter snow Has frozen the summer's fur below For this is the circus of Dr. Lowe And youth may come and age may go But no more circuses like this show Step right up, step right up, ladies and gentlemen And variations thereupon Welcome to the greatest show on earth That's right, it's What Mad Universe The podcast that explores the origins of pop culture Through the genre fiction of the past Both popular and forgotten um, today we're discussing Charles G. Finney's The Circus of Dr. Lowe, a book that is not widely known but remains influential in certain cir- circles. Uh, it's not a household name or anything, but it's never been long out of print either. Uh, Finney was a career newspaperman, but between uh, 1927 and 30, uh, he was on duty with the U.S. Army's 15th Infantry Regiment in, forgive the pronunciation, uh, Tianjin, China. Um, when international forces occupied parts of the country in the wake of the Boxer Rebellion. It was there that he conceived of the novel The Circus of Dr. Lowe, which he began after he was discharged. It won the inaugural uh, National Book Awards, uh, the most original book of 1935, a category that no longer exists. Uh, The original book was illustrated by Ukrainian surrealist, again with the names, uh, Boris Artsy-Bashev. Okay. Artsibashev? I don't know. Sounds good to um, me. Uh, the book was recommended to me by a listener. Uh, it was described as an early example of the urban fantasy sh- subgenre. Uh, that technically fits. Uh, if you use the definition of urban fantasy as uh, a fantasy book set in, a con- in contemporary times in which magic w- mixes with the mundane. But it's a little misleading since it's very unlike anything like uh, Twilight or... Um, you know, any of the what was it the the um the the the, the, 
Dresden Files. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was trying to think of, yeah. Yes. Um, and hello, uh, by the way, we are Adam Prosser oh, and yeah. Phil Price. <laughs> you should know that by now. We're <laughs> we're 46 episodes into this thing. Um, but uh, yes, no, that's interesting. It, in- Go yeah, it, the novel's really hard, almost impossible to categorize. It, it's really, it's uh, it's its own thing, really. Yeah, it's. Uh, I can see. I can actually see the. Uh, on the one hand, when somebody says it's urban fantasy, that feels like the thing where modern day sci-fi fans want to categorize everything with the latest thing and don't know the history mm. that well. But I do see the parallel. Like it, it clearly is part of the thread that led to urban fantasy. Um, and I mean, to a certain extent, you know, urban fantasy arguably comes directly from, you know, fantasy as a genre anyway. It's just the distinction between fantasy set in a romantic time and place long ago or a subcreated world and fantasy set in, you know, supposedly our world and our time, but something fantastical and spectacular happens. Um, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, what happens in this story. Uh, A circus comes to town. And uh, as you say, it's not, it doesn't have, and and as, you know, the forward points out, and most people have commented or pointed out, it doesn't really have much of a plot. Uh, It's basically a series of vignettes that happen when the townsfolk come in to see, you know, the menagerie uh, and, and all the strange mostly animals uh, of the show, although there's a big show at the end with lots of performers. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of a vignette novel in some ways. Might yep. be one of the earlier ones. I was I was trying to research, this is as we do here, uh, I try to sort of place it in and see if there's any antecedents and anything, you know, that really predates it. But I, I, there, there don't seem to be any really obvious, oh yeah, this is building off of that. Uh, other than obvious stuff like Charles Dickens who did that kind of thing and because he was doing chapter books. Uh, but this in and of its as a novel just that's that's a series of little incidents and and uh yeah it has no chapter breaks it's all just one big long stream yeah in fact it's almost sort of yeah it does sort of space things out when it goes to a new attraction but uh right um there's no uh uh, obvious uh chapter breaks yeah it's almost a collection of very short stories and i mean this the book itself is very short so it's almost a uh, a short a nov- novella itself uh, rather mm-hmm. than a full novel and and you know it's made up of all these little incidents and and, and stories um, uh, it's certainly been a huge influence on as we were saying on on urban fantasy but I mean the the big obvious one is this is very Ray Bradbury-esque uh, right up to obviously something wicked this way comes which you may or may not be familiar with it is also about a circus and you know, a supernatural circus that comes to town and strange things happened. Uh, Bradbury's uh, circus is actually more sinister. Um, and of course, Bradbury also did the Martian Chronicles, which has the same kind of structure of being a series of vignettes uh, or mm-hmm. a series of short stories that go together into a larger story. So I, I can't help but imagine this was a huge influence on Bradbury. Um, and yeah, and, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The, the idea of it is a sinister circus, which it isn't in this book. Uh, mm-hmm. Not really, anyway. Well, um, I wouldn't say... there. It, yeah, it, it's not that it's, like, it, malign intent, but it's not a safe place to visit. It's no, just... no. I, I mean, people die in the story, um, yeah. and they're, they summon the devil at one point, you know. Right. Um, yeah, but, like, the uh, devil is basically part of the show, so yeah. how good can it be, um, right? 
Yeah, but at the same time, it's not like because um, before you started it, uh, you were under the impression that Doctor Lowe was like a Fu Manchu type character. Yeah, more or less. And he's um, not. Mm-hmm. He he's more like uh, I mean, we'll we'll get into the race stuff later, definitely. But um, uh, he's more of a sort of benign, neutral ringmaster type right. character. Yeah, he's a he's a He's a cipher. Um, yeah. He doesn't necessarily have, like, his whatever he wants is very opaque <laughs> if he yeah. wants anything at all. Uh, the plot, uh, su- such as it is, uh, the, a circus comes to town. Uh, Dr. Lowe um, gives uh, the local newspaper, uh, the Tribune. Uh, oh, it's, uh, it's in a small town called Abalone in Arizona. Um, in um, 1930s America, so during the Depression, um, uh, Dr. Lowe comes to town and posts a uh, advertisement for a circus that promises all these, you know, uh, mythical animals and you know, greater than any circus you've ever seen before. You know, no elephants or tigers, but just the strangest beasts from across the world and um, a fortune teller that always tells the truth and um, so on. Um, and people are sort of interested. Um, uh, there, it cuts to different um, people in town who are reading this, and um, they, most of them just say, you know, sure, I'll go. You know, there's nothing else to do in this town. And yeah. um, then the, the, most of the story is taken up of people visiting the attractions. And there's, um, like you said, it's basically vignettes uh, set right. in the attractions. And they're there's sort of different tones and um, also sometimes different literary styles. There's uh, uh, mm-hmm. one section where uh, the um, copy editor of the newspaper talks to a sea serpent, and it's just an interview, like it's um, right uh, serpent or snake, and then um, the the name of the uh, uh, Mr. Etwan, I guess his name is, um, and it. Like there's no narration in that section; it's just back a back and forth conversation for a number of pages. Right. Um, it's actually that's reminding me. There, there. It's I, I've heard this described. It, it may be not the best example of it, but I've heard it described as a jackdaw, uh, which is to say, it's uh, a series of different. It it has a bit of a multimedia feel in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's. Only a tiny bit, because that that's more with later novels. But definitely the fact that the newspaper man goes to talk to him and it plays out like an interview, uh, which is clearly intentional. And uh, and just this, and e- you can actually even trace this back. I, I realize something you could trace it back to is Moby Dick, uh, which if you've ever read it, has a lot of, like it really shifts tones and styles chapter by chapter some of the time. And it does yeah, do this that, as well. Yeah, that's pretty common. Uh, Dracula hmm. does that. Um, you know, there's new newspaper sections. Right. There's like romantic sections where, you know, it's like a little romantic comedy within the horror novel. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and it ends with a with the big show. Um, a bunch of the animals turn on each other and start fighting, but they, they clean it up or they clear them out. Um, and then there's a um, uh, the the magician, uh, Apollonius of. Uh, oh, sorry. Um, Tyana. He's a, yeah, Tyana. He was a. An actual guy, probably um, a um, or an actual guy, but the stories about him are exaggerated. Uh, he was uh, born in um, around 15 A.D. 
Um, he was a Neo-Pythagorean philosopher. Um, right. Uh, and he was uh, rumored to have performed miracles. And his life story is often compared and contrasted with that of Jesus. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot in common. Um, yes, I know this. I've heard of this guy. That's right. He And he did he did the thing of going into the tomb and coming out, supposedly coming out alive. He did. He went into the tomb for three years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, I, did, I didn't read much up on him, but there, there's a lot of references to people comparing him with Jesus, like that Jesus right. ripped off his story or whatever. Like <laughs> yeah. Famous, like Voltaire and stuff would uh, use that in their skepticism. Yeah. Yeah, that is a um, famous thing that people point to that if you look at stuff like the Hermeticism at the time and, and yeah, the Pythagoreanism, uh, that where it was very, there was a whole uh, explosion of mystical stuff. Uh, it's actually really interesting because Pythagoras was a, was a mathematician. Um, yeah. That's what's so he, wild about the fact that he basically started a cult. <laughs> yeah, well, it was like they worshipped, you know, they worshipped... Uh, math basically right yeah there were like triangle cults in greece i don't think that was one of his but yeah right yeah no it was just the fact that like what he was doing with math was so wondrous that it overawed people and made him seem messianic to yeah. people i don't know if actually anyway, but, so anyway yeah so he cast some uh, some allusions to the audiences to the audience at the big show uh including um witches worshiping the devil um who is uh, uh called um uh Satan Mechratrig. Yeah, um, which is a um, old um, w- old name for him, uh, meaning uh, Satan, the adversary of man. Huh. Um, I've never heard that before, relate- ever before. It, is that, yeah, what's that it, from? It, it pops up occasionally. It's like, it's just one of his epithets, basically. Yeah. And the, huh. I- the idea of him as an adversary goes to the Old Testament, where he's sort of like the... In, in the book of Job, he's like um, interrogating yeah. Job's um, uh, piety by by punishing him. So he's basically like the district attorney, you know, right? Trying to prove that Job is so that was his sort of role in the Old Testament, and he eventually became more of an evil counter god character. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So yeah, uh, and the other one is a uh, the other illusion that's cast that sort of ends the novel is. Um, a human sacrifice in the ancient city of uh, Waldercan uh, to the god Yaddle, um, who is described as an omnipotent, an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent lump of bronze. Uh, he's possibly a reference to the Aztec god Tezcatl. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of. He has a bunch of names. One of them is Nekak Yautl, enemy of both sides. So it might be a reference to that. Okay. Or yeah. Or Quetzalcoatl is another one. Uh, I think that's the other one. Right. That's another god. Right. No, that's what I'm saying. Uh, that's a different god, but that the yeah. name evokes Yautl a bit too. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, Walderkan is sort of like a. Um, I imagine it as like a Conan the Barbarian type, you know, prehistory, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like a great city um, that has been utterly lost to time because it was destroyed you know, through this botched sacrifice. Right. Yeah, it's actually, well, that's significant, I think, uh, because it's 
it's significant that this is all happening in the 30s, both in the story and in the larger, you know, genre fiction of the time. Um, the 30s, the pre-World War II era is kind of, not exactly, but kind of the last point. Uh, well, I don't want to say it's the last point when you could, you could, you could lie to the rubes, but you could certainly make up some real fantastical stuff and pass it off as real, and people would half buy it because you know there were a lot of people who weren't who didn't have a full education. Um, and the mm-hmm. the show it's uh, the the show the book itself uh, talks about um, like how people immediately. I think it was the uh, the editor Etwan who goes to like look up <laughs> or possibly the lawyer who's the big skeptic uh uh who attends the show but they go oh what's this Waldercan and they look it up in the encyclopedia and they've never and there's no listing for it and like the the book explicitly points out that this is just a made up place right um but yeah that whole oh yeah there are lost continents and lost cities you've never heard of that was a very big thing in the I mean it still is but it was a really big thing in the 30s uh, as you say, yeah, Conan, Conan uh, the Barbarian. <laughs> yeah, I think part of it might have been the horrors of World War One, and people were, you know, spiritualism came a lot of out of that. You know, a lot of everybody knew somebody who died, so right. they were looking for comfort, and that sort of well, branched off into other things. Sure, but I mean, the spirit that like it's tied into spiritualism stuff. Like we talked about Blavatsky a long time ago, and and she was from the 19th century. Like that was that was again. It's actually more like going back to what we were just talking about with Pythagoras, it's almost like when the collision of like science starts to achieve a real, uh, like a real um, momentum and, and it sort of, it starts to impress people with some of the things that are out there. Like, you know, the idea of lost continents or something that had a vague scientific basis. People were sort of understanding the idea of like Pangaea and stuff. And, and so that turned into this popular imagination of, Oh yeah, there are lost continents and sunken cities and Atlantis was real and so on and so forth. And uh, I think that's it, this is an outgrowth of that. And of course, a circus is going to make use of that. Circuses for you know for cent- centuries, if not, or decades, if not centuries, have been uh, you know doing the whole here's a, a elaborate rigmarole based on a an elaborate mythos that we're going to spin for you. And yeah. that's what that is, anyway. Yeah. Uh, speaking of flim flam and hoop de doodle, I think it's time for us to uh, pause for a moment to uh, listen to a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back on What Mad Universe. Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO and Editor-in-Chief over at ShackNews.com. Give a listen to our 9 to 5 Elon podcast about Tesla and electric vehicles and all sorts of cool stuff over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hey Benito, I've been reading the Bible lately, and nobody ever told me how many talking dogs and wizard battles were in this thing. Well Chris, you know what I always say, if you can understand Star Wars, you can understand the Bible. Apocrypals, part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. So, uh, should we talk about the race stuff in the book? Okay, yeah. Well, we It's a thing. Have um, to. <laughs> the the main character uh, or the title character, uh, Dr. Lowe, it's spelled Lao, but it's pronounced Lowe from the, you know, rhyming poetry that we read off at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, he's um, he alternates between um, he's like a, a stereotype of a Chinese man with an accent written out in dialect, you know. Mm-hmm misspelled and you know l's instead of r's and that sort of thing um yeah. but he 
the other half of the time, he's a well-spoken and even insightful sort of showman. Um, right. And uh, it's it's not clear which is the real him. Uh, well, I, think I mean, that's they, part of the point. Yeah, they, they, he's very explicitly like he's most of the time he's up on stage and doing a spiel and doing his barker. And then if somebody asks him an and he'll even answer questions in a very you know elaborate, very florid style. He's he's a bit Willy Wonka esque actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, but then when and if you remember Willy Wonka, whenever somebody asked him an awkward question, he pretended he was deaf. And in this case, okay. uh, when Doctor Low gets asked an awkward question, he suddenly goes. He suddenly pretends he barely speaks English, even though you literally just heard him giving this very yeah. <laughs> detailed speech. And uh, yeah. you, I noticed that, like as you say, Kinney was in. Um, was in China. He was actually from, uh, like, he worked in China in the the army, and I have to think that was actually somewhat based on real experiences. Where um, it, I, I think that's one of the most common things people, you know, who have been uh, had to put up with white people storming into their country have done, where they just their 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 quiet protest is, "Oh, I'm sorry, I don't speak English. I, I don't understand what you're saying." You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. that that's been a common thing for a long time, and and I think that's what he's playing on with that. Yeah, um, so, I mean, there's definitely, um, uh, you could read this as a positive character. On the other hand, there are racial slurs thrown around by right. their characters and so forth. Uh, there's also a section where uh, they look into a, a peep show that's um, an mm-hmm. African setting uh, with uh, the god Mumbo Jumbo, um, which is uh, actually a reference to an, a real African god um, uh, from the uh, Mendinka word, uh Mambo Jumbo, uh, which refers to a male, a masked male dancer who takes part in religious ceremonies, and it eventually got shifted into the English Mambo Jumbo, meaning nonsense. Hmm. Um, okay. So also the the uh, phrase Jumbo from the meaning big comes from the name of a Victorian era uh, circus elephant. Right. So, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, no, the that, the I I think I think for the 30s, Doctor Lowe is a like a very well-meaning in terms of how he was written. Like I was expecting, oh god, this is going to be so racist. And it, literally, the part where he comes off as racist is where he's very explicitly performing a racist caricature. Like it's incredibly yeah. clear in the context of the book that that's what he's doing on purpose to basically uh, befuddle the white people who are trying to who are trying to bother him for various reasons. So I would say for the thirties, it's actually a very positive portrayal of an Asian person. And again, that's probably tied to the fact that Kinney had spent time in China, but mm-hmm. the African portrayals are not good. <laughs> unfortunately. No, um, no, there's the whole white woman being mm-hmm. sacrificed to an African God. And right. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. Uh, the, now, isn't there an African American in Abalone as well that is in the town like isn't he one of the visitors to the circus or did I I think it describes that? a few um, uh, yeah. people of different races but uh, I don't think he's a major character so right so it does it like kind of imply at least a difference between I mean if we're if we're going to grasp at straws here a bit now that said even the portrayal of the African people in the the show the whole point yeah, it might of the just whole, be part of the show, yeah. right? The whole point of the story is that this is all very performative, and it's you know the way people you know, like they're playing both to the rubes and also to just kind of befuddle and and confuse people in some ways. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, you, like you, you've got that as well. Like I, you know, again, there's needless and to Mumbo say, there's Jumbo is part of the show. He comes in in the right. tent in the last act. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I mean, it's not something you'd read and go, oh, this is so enlightened, but 
I mean, for the time, I think it was it was well-meaning. Again, I, it's just unfortunately at the time <laughs> you could play into very bad uh, stereotypes and not have uh, any malign intent, but <laughs> that's what happened. Yeah, uh, so I guess uh, we can discuss the movie, which you haven't seen. I have not. Um, I, I managed to, to, or I actually didn't find a copy. A friend found a copy uh, um, that I watched. Uh, it was made in uh, 1964. It's called the Seven Faces of Doctor Low, um, though they switch between Low, Lao, and some other things. Uh, the pronunciations in the movie are a little all over the place. Abalone is abalone and abalon and other places. Um, it was uh, directed by George Pal, who um, was involved in various sci-fi movie adaptations, The Time Machine, um, uh, The um, War of the Worlds, and some other things. Um, this was his last directorial movie. Uh, the film starred uh, Tony Randall as Lowe. Um, <laughs> Tony Randall from the uh, uh, Odd Couple TV show. It was originally going to be Peter Sellers, who was interested in the role, but uh, the producers wanted an American. Uh, Randall, uh, obviously, is a white guy, and there's you know yellow face, and that's unfortunate, uh, to say the least. Um, that said, the the character in the movie is a pos is like a positive Willy Wonka type, uh, as you said. And he it's explicitly he's putting on the racist accent when he wants to befuddle people, and he speaks uh, fluent English other times, and he even puts on a Scottish accent at one point, sort of switches between different voices. Uh, Randall also played uh, Merlin in the movie, um, who's not in the book. They sort of split up Apollonius and Merlin into two into two different characters. So Apollonius does the fortune telling and Merlin is the wizard. Um, he plays Apollonius as well. Uh, he voices the uh, serpent, uh, which is, again, different from the sea serpent from the from the book. Um, and uh, he also plays Medusa, apparently. And um, I didn't I didn't realize that when I was watching. And he plays an audience member. He was also credited as playing the abominable snowman, but uh, that was apparently a bodybuilder in a costume. Right. Um, well, he has to play seven roles, right? It's called the seven faces. Yeah, of yeah. So he's yeah. an audience member, so that's the seventh role, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting movie. Um, like you were saying, you, you weren't clear on how they could have made this into a movie since it doesn't have a plot. Uh, and they... they We've a save the town plot thing. Uh, oh, the the main change besides that is it's set in the old west for some reason, hmm. um, and uh, the the town newspaper uh, is fighting against the uh, local rich guy who wants to uh, buy the town, um, and the uh, newspaper guy is like a crusader who wants to save the town. Um, and the uh, the rich guy secretly uh, knows that there's going to be a, a a uh, train, a uh, railroad being built nearby, so he'll be able to reap the benefits if he owns the whole thing. Um, and um, then the circus comes to town, and a lot of the um, attractions are reworked into sort of moral lessons relating to that. Hmm. So, like he talks, so it's the rich guy who talks to the snake instead of a instead of an editor. And um, there's like um. The snake actually looks like him. He's voiced by Tony Randall, but he looks like the actor who's playing the uh, um, the rich guy. And they have a conversation about nature of evil and stuff. 
the rich guy actually has an interesting motivation in the movie. Uh, he used to be idealistic and believe in the good in people, but they constantly let him down. So now he's just trying to sort of... Um, he's giving them every option to prove him wrong, but they keep proving him right, that, he, that people are basically bad. Hmm. But at the end of the movie, it all comes together, and they reject his offer, and he, he's glad about it. Hmm. Yeah, um, well, that, that actually, you say it's set in the Old West for a reason, but that makes sense, because that's the Gilded Age, you know, uh, the, the Baron would always come to town and, and buy yeah, up all yeah. the rights. So, so that's something that, I mean, that I guess that could be happening in the Depression as well, but it's associated more with the Old West, and of yeah, course, Westerns yeah. were huge at the time. And, so, um, so like I said, a lot of the attractions are reworked into uh, metaphors about the, the main the plot they added, uh, right. say the um, uh, thing about the um, Walder can is uh, reworked into a guy coming to town and getting them to not worship their god, and that causes right. the destruction of the town. Right, right, yeah, yeah. That's that's to me that I mean, based on your description there, that's that's less interesting than what's in the book. In the book, uh, just to be clear, because this is kind of the centerpiece of the book. Um, it, it tells the story of, uh, you know, in Weldercon there was a big drought. Uh, people were suffering. Um, people were suffering. There was a, there was a, you know, they were starving. Um, they were so the the priest said, well, let's have a big ceremony to uh, yodel, and um, uh, and you know, and the priest started in with, oh, yodel, we're all miserable sinners. We're all so terrible and and wretched, and we beg and pray and and so on for your for your help, and. Um, the audience basically goes, what, what are you talking about? We're not, I mean, sure, we have our problems. We're not that bad. They, <laughs> they inject nuance into the religious ceremony and, and, you know, don't, don't tell them that we're terrible. Tell them, you know, that, you know, we just, you know, it would be nice if we could get some rain and the priest gets all, uh, all honked off about it. And he goes, Oh, okay. Well, like he gets really sarcastic, like, okay, Hey, yodel, we're great. And we rule. You better give us some rain right now. We demand our, our rain. Like he, he could turn, he can totally contorts it into like being a jerk. Basically. Um, surprisingly, they aren't immediately struck down by lightning or whatever. Uh, instead they hold a beauty contest and the most, which is cl clearly, this is the aspect that is supposed to be part of the, you know the circus show, and um, they pick out the most uh, beautiful uh, mate. And and there's a, been a guy in the audience, especially the whole time, who's been yelling out. Um, I imagine this is the Tony Randall character in the movie, actually, right? Am I wrong? No, or? no. The all the stuff from this section is apparently taken from uh, a movie the produce the director had previously produced about Atlantis. So it's like stock oh. footage. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, With so there's narration. a guy, there's a guy in the Walter Kion uh, sequence who uh, who. Uh you know, who keeps yelling out and, and interrupting with questions and skepticism. And uh, the woman who gets picked to be the virgin sacrifice to Yaddle is uh, his his uh, fiance, And so he cries out in pain. And then eventually um, Yaddle uh, falls off his <laughs> altar and crushes the priest, the woman, and the skeptical guy. They all die. Um, and I, can't, I actually can't remember. Do they get rain after that? Or is that... <laughs> does he, I think does he the, the city is destroyed after that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it doesn't really work out for anyone. Um, but it is interesting because you read that and um, I, you tend to think like, okay, is this a commentary on religion maybe? Because it seems to be, usually in that kind of fable, it's always, oh, those foolish townsfolk, they listen, didn't listen to what the priest said. But 
it comes off more as critical of the priest and the people, the townsfolk being very reasonable for a change, um, and that it's actually more about how the priest, uh, you know, keeps injecting himself into the discussion that the people are trying to have with their their god, and he's the one who keeps messing it up essentially. Um, but you could read it a number of different ways. Do you did you interpret it that way, or do you think it was um, meant? To be? I had no idea what that was about, um, other than a weird thing that happened. Uh, yeah, it sort of defies uh, any straight, um, you know, metaphor uh, analysis. Um, right. I figured it was something about the depression, because um, like because they were trying to save their city and. Um, yeah. weren't willing to, to do what it takes to do it. I don't, I have no idea. Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, it's set in the middle of the depression, although they don't specifically mention anything about the, the town being in the middle of a drought or having any real problems, no. uh, other than just, we know it's set in the depression, but if you're writing in 1935, <laughs> you may not have necessarily have thought, oh yeah, this town is in trouble so much as just, it's just an average little town. Um, so I'm not sure that reading is totally supported. Um, it's it's hard to say, uh, but it is interesting because uh, this the 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 story keeps sort of questioning itself and rejecting itself. Um, you know, there's literally a, a section of questions at the end. Uh, that literally says, here are some, you know, discussion questions, and it literally yeah, starts yeah. nitpicking listing holes. Listing plot holes. Yeah, <laughs> listing, or not not plot holes, but things that are completely ambiguous, and he's literally like, so, f like, for instance, there's an early scene where um, one of the first encounters that the townspeople have with the exhibits is Agnes Birdsong, the local um, school teacher who's described as being very pretty. She comes in to see the satyr. Satyr starts playing his pipes, and... Um, uh, seduces her. It's actually a little bit, you know, closer to rape than I would like. But it does explain. It does say that you know she's seduced and thrown. It throws herself into his arms as well. Um, but um, and of course that's kind of the the first thing that happens is you know being seduced by the circus, right? It's a metaphor for that that idea. Um, but um, as the story, you know, th there's lots throughout the story. You keep sort of expecting. It to be almost a you know tales from not a tales from script a you know Twilight Zone kind of thing. It's you know everyone in the town's gonna gonna get what they deserve one way or another, right? And yeah, but that it's really um, all over the place, um, right? Even how people react to the you know obvious monsters and things they're experiencing, right? Some people are are changed uh, permanently, like Agnes Birdsong describes in the the afterward that. Um, uh, she was uh, sort of more fun-loving after that uh, because she sort of experienced lust in that in right. that um, situation. But other characters just sort of dismiss it as a fraud or are just utterly blasé about, you know, a chimera in front of them or a mermaid, you know. Yeah. Like you think the, uh, uh, the, the lawyer... There's a the lawyer character who's the he's the the voice of skepticism. He keeps kind of going in and saying, I mean, not that the a lot of the characters kind of go, well, this can't be real, right? But the lawyer's the one who won't shut up about how everything's fake, and he's also described as literally having all these like artificial parts, like face, false teeth, and uh, you know, a a a, a hernia. A girdle for his hernia of some kind, and at one at the end of his description, they say, uh, you know, years later they dug up his coffin and found nothing inside but wires and 
and pins. Um, yeah, a bit ableist, but you know. Yeah, well, it's it's you know they're. I think he's you know trying to, to portray him as someone who it, yes, it is ableist, <laughs> but it but it's the idea that he's a you know he's he's not he's a he's he's made of metal. He's not he's he's a bit like the Tin Man, I guess. Yeah. Um, but 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 you expect like oh yeah, this guy's gonna. He's gonna something horrible's gonna happen to him in the circus, and it, it never happens. He's he, he just walks away, walks out at the end, you know, trying to, you know, I guess he he doubts that he ever saw anything wonderful. But uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's also a um, uh, a woman who goes to a lot of fortune tellers, and they always tell her she's gonna meet somebody right tall, dark, and handsome. And so she sees Apollonius, and he just tells her, you know, you've peaked. Nothing's going to happen. Interesting is going to happen for the rest of your life. Every day will be like the next day, you know, like the last day, you know. Right. Um, you'll never meet, there'll never be another man in your life. Your your business ventures will go badly. And um, and she's really well, upset. Well, it's, but, you're, you're never going to find oil. That was the thing. She was counting on yeah. she'd strike oil someday. and That's not, never going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she gets upset, um, and she also hits on him. Well, that's um, the thing. She doesn't, that's what I found interesting, because she, she doesn't really get upset. She kind of blows off what he's saying. But then, yeah, as you yeah, say... No, she gets upset in, uh, initially, but as she leaves, she said, oh, it was wonderful. He told me I was going to meet a tall, dark, handsome man and yeah. strike oil. And yeah, so she just sort of ignores all of his advice. Well, and that's all what... All of his um, predictions. Yeah, his, yeah, and they actually said that, oh, yeah, Apollonius' predictions always come true, and once you've heard it, there's nothing you can do to alter what's going to happen. It's, you're, it, you know, it's, it's fate. But what's really interesting about and so it sort of seems, you know, that's got a very sinister air to it. But what really throws it for a loop for me is that after she hears all this, she starts, yeah, as you say, hitting on Apollonius and saying, oh, well, I'd be interested. Like, she talks, they talk like, you know, oh, you're never going to get a man, you're never going to, you know, you, you can't. And she's not really. She's expecting men to fall into her life. It's it's sort of implied that like she doesn't reach out to people, and that's why she's not going to have any experiences. But she does it to Apollonius, and she says, "Oh, we should go go out." And Apollonius basically says, "No, no, 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 no. I'm too old to start over, ma'am. I'm I can't. I'm you know I'm two thousand years old. I can't. We 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 can't get together and so forth." She kind of turns the tables on him because, <laughs> like, she literally defies what he was going to do and he's the one who basically acts the way he accuses her of acting by you know essentially being closed off and not wanting to you know make a new friend i guess uh that was really interesting to me because in these kinds of stories it's always like oh when you encounter something supernatural and the and the fantastical you know you you want you you think you want to know the future but you don't really want to know the future because it will be horrifying for you and it will be you know bad in ways you hadn't expected but you know they kind of, the fortune teller gets you know gets a curveball thrown at him too so it doesn't land a hundred percent you can almost say that apollonius was wrong in a way because he had an opportunity you know the ball went was in his court mm-hmm. right so i found yeah. that really interesting because it was like it it, it wrong footed you usually it's you know this kind of story and all the stories like this since it's People come to a circus, they're they're skeptical or they don't know, and they're just regular, mundane, average, suburban folks. Oh, or you know, sub, the suburbs weren't really a thing in the '30s, but you know, like it was, you know, they're 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 almost being um, portrayed in a somewhat contemptuous manner, and they 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 encounter the the supernatural or the numinous, and it it 
and makes everything strange for them and changes their lives in ways that might be dark or might be positive. Um, but this story actually kind of suggests that, you know, you, you, it's, it's more sympathetic to the townsfolk than you're expecting. And, and, and maybe more, it undercuts the circus more than you're expecting in that, in that mm. context, which is really interesting. Um, so I, my, uh, the thing that really, um, uh, drew me in to this is the, uh, explanations of some of the creatures. Um, Dr. Lowe likes giving lectures on, uh, each of the, um, exhibits. And I just found them really interesting. Like the, the, histories he goes into uh, obviously fictional histories like the satyr um he describes it as um uh in in time you know days long ago shepherds would uh um sit playing their pipes while dreaming of love and uh, it's a little ambiguous but it this this story either implies that the shepherds literally had sex with the flock and created half-human hybrids <laughs> right. or that it was more like a neil gaiman thing where their thoughts and ideas became reality Right. Um, well, he, he talks about the the goats turning human, and uh, and the the shepherds having a, yeah, <laughs> and that's what leads to a half human. But, but half it's goat not baby. clear if if it's you know uh, right. literal or a magical thing. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, a lot of the creatures are described sort of with uh, pseudo scientific, um, like they're they're given taxonomies and um, so right. forth. Like the the Medusa is uh, said the snakes on the head of a Medusa. Uh, match the species of snakes common to the region the Medusa is born in. And the one in this story was born in Mexico, so she has various kinds of Mexican snakes on her head. Um, and uh, the the book sort of takes evolution as a as a given, which is interesting for the time period and and place. Like uh, Dr. Lowe talks about the evolutionary history of some of these creatures or mm -hmm. theorizes on them. Um, right. Well, just to be clear, um, ev evolution wasn't actually, it, like, the degree to which evolution is controversial has not been a wholly, like, don't forget the Scopes monkey trial had already been had at this point. Um, yeah. And, and I but mean, it, educated I mean, I people knew evolution. I think a small town America would, right. some people would have a problem with it. Right. Well, it depends. But anyway. <laughs> there, are, there are towns where they weren't that religious as well. I, I, I think it's a mistake yeah. to think it was all, you know, biblical fun fundamentalism until, I know, you know, but it, your it, ex. But. I mean... Yeah, it was still controversial up until like mm -hmm. fifteen years ago. I mean, right that that whole intelligent design mess that was coming yeah. out. Well, that's um, that that's actually that, like that's that was a reactionary thing. Yeah, it, it came back, and it before you know the eighties, people stopped. <laughs> people had mostly accepted evolution, and it's been kind of a, a recursion. But anyway, yeah. So, but anyway, I just found that kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. There's also a lengthy history of the chimera. Uh, which is a unique creature in this book. Obviously, chimeras in Greek mythology, but this one's right. entirely different. Uh, um, it can, combines like lizard and fur and uh, and mammal and um, various things. And it's described. Uh, it's a statue of it uh, depicting it was brought to China and uh, through uh, recreation of the statue became the Chinese dragon. Right. Uh, according to this story, the Chinese dragon is based on a real animal that people had mm -hmm. seen like secondhand. Well, the chimera is historically it's uh, the head of a lion, the body of a goat, and the tail of a serpent. Um, yeah. And they... Sometimes it has uh, two heads: one a lion, one a goat. It's that's right. how it's sometimes depicted. 
yeah, it's it's uh, more broadly a chimera can just mean any kind of uh, mixed animal that's a, a, a any kind of mythological animal, or even in science, I think it has a term, but it means sort of crossbreeding and yeah. mixing different uh, different species together. Uh, but yeah, he d- he's very emphas- he really emphasizes the breath. And there's it's interesting that there's no dragon in the show, but the chimera is kind of the dragon, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, it's it, uh, in the story. It's the basis for the uh, for the Asian dragon, which right. is interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I like the, the the idea of um, people seeing a statue and then copying the statue with their own statue, and that eventually goes down and becomes right. a whole different animal <laughs> in mythology. Right, but so, and like, that, m- mythology is real, but there's also mythology about the mythology. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's still garbled, even though the mythology is we're explicitly showing you sphinxes and and crazy yeah. animals that shouldn't exist. Um, yeah. The, also, uh, uh, the the sphinx is um, uh, interesting. It, it's as a woman's face, but a male voice, and it's described as um, explicitly hermaphrodite, hermaphroditic, mm-hmm. or um, both male and female. Right. Um, that, that's, I think, more or less in keeping with the Greek legend of the Sphinx, although uh, it's sometimes... The, I think the Greek Sphinx is sometimes portrayed as female, but not... It's usually female, yes. Yeah, yeah. but but they are... You're, I think there is sort of, as you say, the, the, the idea that it's not really a woman, it just looks like a woman and it's just a monster, yeah. right? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's uh, also... Um, there's a werewolf uh, woman who... Uh, um, her um, transformations are explicitly called a period at one point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like they're they're explicitly uh, linked to menstruation, right? You know, phases of the moon. You know, mm-hmm. sort of funny. Um, and uh, uh, there's a rock's egg that hatches over the course of the story and becomes uh, uh, a rock chick in the final big show. Um, yeah. And uh, there's also a bear that. Um, it might be a bear or it might be a hairy Russian man. Um, <laughs> people are adamant about either one, but nobody, you know, everybody, like, it causes massive arguments throughout the story. Right. Between some people characters. see a bear and some people see a human. Um, yeah. And the mermaid, of course. Right, right. Uh, and uh, the sea serpent, who's uh, intelligent and ancient right. and um, um, right. very selfish and and sly and he wants to kill yeah. low for for having captured him right um, and the serpent is very it's funny because we talk about you know satan makes an appearance at the end but the, the sea serpent is the biblical serpent essentially um it's yeah he's very much standing in for you know evil and seduction and and you know he immediately confronts edouan as like well, I'm in a cage, but you're in a cage, and I hate humans, and like it's it's very you know he he's clearly being paralleled with the biblical serpent. Yeah, the uh, the movie has uh, the sea serpent and the snake as different creatures, right? And the snake is clear as the face of the the um, the rich guy, and it's clearly that sort mm-hmm. of serpent of the Garden of Eden thing. Um, yeah. In the movie, the sea serpent is actually the Loch Ness monster. Uh, and it's actually just a small creature in a fishbowl, but when it's it dries out, it expands really big. <laughs> That's funny. The, uh, um, the the yeah, it's it's interesting that they make the sea serpent into like I say, like it sound in every other respect, it seems like a land snake. Uh, there's not you know, but he talks about like its adventures are you know swimming all over the world. Um, but you know, you don't usually associate sea serpents with like snakes that will bite you and poison you right like yeah that's a different kind of snake right but yeah 
though it's uh, it has aspects of different serpents. It, it rattles its tail. It doesn't have a rattle, but it's sort of an atavism. Uh, right. And uh, it it says it has um, uh, it's both poisonous and can uh, crush you like a boa constrictor. Though as the uh, ending uh, bit, you know the uh, the afterward points out, uh, he bites. He bites the chimera at one point and doesn't kill it. So, right. What's with that? <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's. Uh, I guess chimeras are immune to poison or something. I don't. Or know. yep. Uh, A lot of it, the book invites you to make up your own explanations for some of these things. There's also a golden ass uh, from from a, uh, a Roman era novel. Apparently, right. one of the few existing lat entirely Latin novels from the period. Yes. Um, and there's the Hound of the Hedges, which I think right. is an original creature. Uh, yeah. It looks like a dog, but it's actually plant. Right. And it has thorns for teeth and uh, grass for fur, and, and it yeah. only eats lettuce leaves and things and plants. And it's... Uh, yeah. Oh, and uh, there's a unicorn as well that has a metal horn. Right. Yeah. So, so in interesting takes on a lot of these creatures. Um, I, I was really interested, like I said, in, in a lot of the lectures that Lowe gives over the course of yeah. the book. Yeah, like I say, it's a series of little portraits of the fantastical, basically. And in many yeah. ways, they're not too in-depth. The serpent gets a lot of attention, the mermaid, the Medusa gets a fair amount of attention, and the satyr gets a little vignette. And then there's the the Russian... Uh, and, and the chimera as well. And the chimera and the werewolf. Um, and then, like I say, there's the big show at the end, First, the, there's a witch's Sabbath, essentially, and um, which Satan shows up to. And the uh, and this is all done by Apollonius. Apollonius, as well as reading uh, fortunes, he does sort of cringe magic tricks. He brings a two-headed turtle to life uh, out yeah, of mud. Yeah, uh, though he, uh, the two heads was an accident, apparently. Yeah. Uh, he's <laughs> yeah. just out of practice. Yeah. Um, he can do all these amazing things, anyway. Oh, he's the a... movie, um, that that scene isn't in the movie, though there's a, um, uh, it's Merlin who does the magic in the movie. Um, right. Though there is, uh, in Dr. Lowe's um, uh, study, I think, there was a uh, prop of a two-headed turtle. And that mm -hmm. was apparently later used in episodes of The Addams Family. Oh, okay. There you go. Just weird <laughs> connections. Also, Barbara Eden from uh, I Dream of Jeannie is, plays the school teacher. Oh, okay. Cool. Nice. Uh, yeah. Though yeah. She has a, her character has a different name, and she's uh, the love interest of the crusading newspaper guy. Yeah. And uh, her uh, interaction with, uh, with the satyr um, sort of loosens her up a bit. Yeah. I have, to, imag I have to imagine... Uh, you know, the a '60s move kids movie has probably a different tone than this. Uh, oh yeah, 30s, yeah. Uh, more adult aimed novel. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's... it's very much a, a Willy Wonka thing. The movie, right? Uh, or it plays up those elements of the uh, right of the because there's dark stuff in it. I imagine kids would actually be scared of a lot of it. At least kids at the time, because you know, stop motion. So yeah, I think more kids today are more jaded. But you know, you never know. Well, that actually brings me to uh, uh, kind of the, the big final thing I want to talk about here. The um, the uh, the you know, as you say, there's a, a the most important thing I think. Well, maybe not the most important, but a, a very significant thing uh, is that the bear. That as we say, people see it and they don't know if it's a human or if they or if it's a bear. It's it's extremely ambiguous. And one thing I both the introduction to this book and whenever you read reviews and you read people talking about the book, everyone's like, well, this is a metaphor, but 
what's it a metaphor for? Everyone's trying to figure out what the metaphor that Finney's going for here is. And I actually would argue that the book uh, is pr- possibly about the way that uh, not everything has to be a metaphor. <laughs> um, yep. That 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 it's that the 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 centerpiece of fantasy, as it were. Uh, is just that it can be completely ambiguous and completely opaque, and it can just be what it is as well. It can just be something fantastic, even though there's there's clearly meaning to everything that's happening in the story. It's not necessarily like, oh yeah, this is a, a straightforward allegory for something, or or. And as I say, I was even expecting, you know, e- even the the part where you expect like a moral twist or a you know tales from the crypt kind of thing or a, a Twilight Zone twist. Uh, even that doesn't happen. People just come in. They get, they don't even always get changed, as you say, by the circus. They just encounter something strange for once in their life and go home, um, which is very surprising, uh, you know, after, you know, decades more of this kind of story to see that kind of thing. And and, and, and I think that is, again, part of the point of the, the story of Waldercan as well. Uh, it's, you know, you could argue it as a metaphor for, you know, people trying to get something from the fantastic and you know, you won't get what you want out of it. <laughs> It'll just, it will, yeah. it will behave its own way uh, in ways that aren't satisfactory to you. Um, I think that is the message. If you're, if we're looking for a message in this story, I think that is it. And I think yeah, that's there's a, a, yeah. There's a line by Dr. Lowe from his uh, one of his speeches. Uh, the world was the world is my idea, as such I present it to you. I have my own set of weights and measures and my own table for computing values. You are privileged to have yours. Well, the tents have been struck and the animals packed away in their cages. The show has once again come to an end for the night. They say there's a sucker born every minute. If that's so, uh, many a sucker was born during the recording of this episode of What Mad Universe. We've been your Masters of Ceremonies, Philip Rice and Adam Prosser. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Ross, a great foot juggler. And the dulcet tones of our theme song is as rendered on the Calliope by Jack Fury. We'll be riding the rails of the Greenlit Podcast Network for the weeks to come as we tour the small towns of North America. Yes, uh, a reminder that you can hear our show early by subscribing to either of our Patreons. The links are below, or if you're listening to this via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and the like, you can check them out at NeverSleepsNetwork slash series slash what-mad-universe, or just go to Patreon and search Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's. Uh, You can also find links on our website to our Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter feeds. But again, you can search for us there or at our Twitter feed of WMU Podcast. Uh, We'd love to hear from you with questions, comments, or suggestions for books to look at for this podcast. And in particular, if you like the show, please leave a review for us at iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. That's it for now, but we shall return. After all, the show must go on.